Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear the cross. The chapter began with the tragedy of Judas in verses 3 through 10. And then the trial before Pilate beginning in verses 1 and 2. And then continuing in verses 11 through 26. Now Matthew records the travesty of the soldiers. We see their contempt in verses 21 or 27 through 31. Their cruelty in verses 30 and 31. And in the, in the midst of so much sorrow, Jesus is going to receive just this tiny moment, a welcome relief from an unwilling bystander in verse 32. All this provides a picture a vivid picture of how the world treats God's son. You see, the world doesn't simply resist Jesus and they don't simply reject Jesus. The world wants to destroy the son of God. And so the Jewish rulers and the Roman governor have passed judgment because Jesus is a threat. In their mind's eye, he is a threat and he must be destroyed. The soldiers mock and torture him in verses 26. And this mockery and torture is going to take place all the way to verse 38. It's not just the soldiers who will mock him. The average person will mock and abuse Jesus later on in the chapter in verses 39 through 40. The religious and government leaders mock and taunt Jesus in verses 41 through 43. The criminals who are hanging next to him are going to mock and taunt him in verse 44. This graphic description of Christ's suffering provides an unexpected temptation. And the temptation is that we are tempted to simply feel sorry for Jesus. Let me explain myself. We're tempted to pity him, to pity Jesus, because we live in a culture, we live in a society that's saturated with victimhood, saturated with psychology, always looking through this therapeutic lens. We see Jesus as victim, but in a moral world where sin exists, God invites us not simply to pity Jesus as the victim of mankind, but rather Jesus is the victim for sin. You see, if you read this text and if you examine it and you just simply look at all of the awful and horrible things that were done to Jesus, then you're actually not going to understand the point of the text. Christ's suffering and death is payment against Sin against sin against God. Years ago, when we first planted the church and when we were over on Littleton Boulevard, we were having a Bible study and this guy walked into the church and he was wearing a t-shirt and on the t-shirt there was a man beaten beyond all recognition. His eyes were so swollen shut. His, his hair was dirty and matted and bloody and on his head was a crown of thorns. It was, quite frankly, one of the most disturbing images I have ever seen. The caption underneath it read, If I'm okay and you're okay, explain this. 
we come to the very center of the gospel. The cross was never meant to just simply elicit emotion, pity, revulsion. Some of you who may have watched the movie, The Passion of the Christ, literally had to turn your head away as this awful and brutal depiction came to life. The reason, the reason the cross can serve as a symbol of hope is because in its substance, it reveals the seriousness of sin. Most of you are familiar with the story of the cross. But only the Holy Spirit, the author of the story, can tell us and teach us the meaning of the story. Yes, it's a story about love and power, but it's also a story of the horror of sin, which made all of these sorrows necessary. The Bible's explanation is both simple and complex. The Bible's explanation for the suffering and the sorrow of Jesus is because human beings are lost. Mankind is lost. Paul writes about it in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all have sinned, unquote. Death is the universal reminder that sin is alive. And that sin is harmful. Andrew Murray, that great devotional writer and pastor of long ago wrote, quote, The cross of Christ does not make God love us. It is the outcome and the measure of his love for us, unquote. Does God really love us? Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross was meant to answer the question once and for all, fully and finally, does God love me? The cross of Calvary is historical, it is factual, but the cross of Calvary is also a revelation. Revelation means an uncovering or an unveiling. It's on the cross that we see the revelation of God's love by God's sacrifice, and the suffering and the death of Jesus is going to bring in full focus how God really feels about sin. And about you. What will you do with that love? How will you respond to that love? In this passage, we have a group of Roman soldiers. They're stationed in a faraway place. They are going to now deal with that love. We're also going to see a pilgrim far from home, compelled to deal with that love. And so we begin with the company of the soldiers. Look what it says in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, and then they gathered the whole garrison around him. Pilate has passed judgment in verse 26. Jesus has been scourged at a pile on, which is, which is a, a stone pillar in verse 26. The Bible teaches that Jesus is punished and scourged for our sins. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed Jesus suffers willingly in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. The the prophet Isaiah, by the Holy Spirit, sees the suffering of Jesus and says, I gave my back to the smiters. He offers his back. The humiliated Christ is taken by the soldiers into the praetorium. Note what it says. The whole garrison around him. That word garrison or whole band is a very unique word. It's a specific word. It's spiron. This is a military term, which meant a cohort. It could mean a cohort is one-tenth of a full 
legion of soldiers. So we're talking about 600 soldiers, but sometimes it could mean a maniple. Now, in each cohort, there were three maniples in the Roman legion in the ancient world. The maniples would consist of 200 soldiers each. So it could mean a maniple. Each cohort making up 200 soldiers, what is meant here isn't exactly known. We don't know exactly if this means 200 soldiers or 600 soldiers, but this is what we do know. It is a large assembly of soldiers. I'm going to suggest to you at least 200, possibly as many as 600. This is what we do know. The praetorium is the common area where the soldiers were, would assemble or that they would get in their ranks. And so here's what we do know. This is a public spectacle. Jesus is going to suffer publicly so that we can be saved. Jesus is going to be, he's going to suffer publicly before human beings. He is going to be seen by angels in heaven and human beings on the earth. And sometimes this is exactly what will happen to us. We might experience public opposition, public suffering, public humiliation. We might be made a spectacle for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, for the kingdom's sake. So that we can reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul writes about this ongoing public display in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 9. Where he says, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and men, unquote. The soldiers are tasked with the mission to protect the governor, to secure the interests of Rome. Whoever these guys are and wherever they've come from, almost certainly they've come from all parts of the Roman Empire in being stationed in this outpost, in this province. And in verse 28, we go to the contempt of the soldiers. Look what it says. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. Stripped means exactly what it sounds like stripped naked few things are more disturbing and humiliating than to be publicly exposed they strip him one of the soldiers or perhaps a group of the soldiers have the what they consider the brilliant idea that they're going to put a scarlet robe on what they think is a make-believe king Obviously, these actions are intended to generate shame. What's interesting to me is that this is exactly what sin does. It strips us. It exposes us. It exposes our nakedness. That picture is seen at the beginning of the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve disobey God and they are naked. They are stripped. Jesus is stripped and covered with a man-made scarlet robe to mock his claims as king. And Jesus wears this scarlet robe you know what the color is. It's blood red. He is going to wear this mocking robe so that you can wear a robe of righteousness. And again, the prophet Isaiah writes, quote, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And in verse 29, when it says, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, hail, king of the Jews. Now think about this, a twisted crown of thorns. In the original language, it, it speaks of a woven 
crown is placed on his holy head. A reed is placed on his holy right hand. The crown was almost certainly made from a nearby thorn bush. Again, in order to make the mockery complete, someone has the the idea that they're going to take this crown and they're going to fit it on top of his head. And the crown almost certainly was, was, was taken from a bush that's growing nearby. The thorns are then brutally pressed into his sensitive scalp. And you may or may not know this, but you have blood vessels both inside between the, the cranium and, and, your, and your brain on, and on the outside. On the top of the surface of your skull is rich in blood. This is why when you get hit, you, you bleed so profusely. And so they take this crown of thorns and they press it on top of his head. The thorns are brutally pressed into his sensitive scalp, soaking his hair in blood. And I want to remind you that thorns are a part of the biblical curse against for sin against God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. There were no thorns in the Garden of Eden. Thorns came as a result of human being sin. And no wonder thorns become a fitting symbol for sin. Thorns are often found right next to some of the most beautiful things that exist in God's creation. You can't have a perfect rose unless you have a brutal thorn. And so that's the fitting symbol for sin. Sin punctures, wounds, inflames, festers. And so again, all of a sudden we begin to see in this mockery the unfolding of Jesus as the king as they press this crown, they put the robe on him. Jesus wears this robe so that you can wear a different one. The crown is pressed into his head so that you don't have to. Jesus allows the callous soldiers to torture him so that sin doesn't have to permanently torture you. It doesn't take a great deal of imagination to see the blood-rich veins on his scalp pour over his already swollen face. The crown was meant to mock the laurel wreath that was worn by the emperor or the Olympic champion would wear this laurel wreath to proclaim victory. This crown served two purposes. Number one, to mock Jesus. And number two, to torture Jesus. So you pause in the text and you ask a different question. What interest do these soldiers have in Jesus? Their interest? He's the subject of ridicule. He's the subject of contempt. He's the subject of mockery. He is a way of entertainment in a faraway place. In verse 30 it says, then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. The word struck translates a Greek word. In the Old King James, it says smote. But what's interesting about this, it's, it's, the verb tense is, is in a continual action. It, it, it means they hit him and they continued to hit him and they repeatedly hit him. And so the cruelty continues. They spat on him. To my knowledge, no culture considers spitting in your face a compliment. The cruel soldiers snatch the reed from his already weakened grip and then they begin to violently beat his swollen and bloody face and as they violently beat him with this reed, the thorny crown embeds itself deeper and deeper into his already swollen scalp. 
What a graphic picture of mankind at its worst. Cruelty begetting cruelty. Savagery begetting more savage behavior. I watched a, a special on PBS about the wars in the world. They had clips from World War II that showed glimpses of the Holocaust or what the Jews call the Shoah. In this film, it showed literally, and I'm not exaggerating, mountains of dead bodies. It went from the gaze of the living and the emaciated to the piles of the dead. There were literal mounds of human beings being bulldozed into open pits. The Nazi death camps revealed the depth of human sin, but there were other images in this special of war in Korea and Vietnam, the image of public executions from countries all over the world, images that I'll never forget of bloated bodies going down a river in Rwanda and the mass graves of Kosovo, the planned Jewish genocide. It's, it seems impossible to me that you can see all of this footage and come to the conclusion that, that human beings are basically okay. That there's something good and decent about us. Imagine the person who argues that we're good, but we're misguided. We're good, but we're confused. We're good, even though we've come to believe things that aren't necessarily true. We're flawed, but good. We're broken. We're shattered. We're desperate. And I want you to think for just a moment. Because even though the text makes it necessary for us to feel bad for Jesus... If that's all that happens in the text, you misunderstand the text. You've misread the text. You've misapplied the text. Our acceptance of sin and our comfort with sin and our love affair with sin reveals just how easy it is not only to resist Jesus, not only to reject Jesus, but to despise him and then try to find a way to destroy him. And these Roman soldiers fully participate in the rejection of Jesus. The religious leaders rejected Jesus because he held up a mirror and he revealed the darkness and the envy and the hypocrisy in their souls. Pilate rejected Jesus because he was unwilling to give up his social status. He was afraid of the rabid mob and the soldiers reject Jesus because they think he's a joke. Have you ever met someone who thought Christianity and Christ and Christians were one big laughable joke? Before I came to Christ, I took perverse pleasure in mocking Christ and making fun of Jesus and Christians, persecuting Christians, yelling at Christians, annoying Christians, um, plaguing them. That was what gave me a sense of cruel satisfaction. I made cruel and offensive jokes. It was my way not to in any way justify what I did. It was my way to cover up my own anger and hatred and fear that consumed my life. It made perfect sense to me that no one could be that happy, that no one could have experienced grace and mercy and love. It made perfect sense to me that there was just this collection of people who were engaging in a massive lie in order to satisfy themselves in something that was absurd and that couldn't possibly be true. The soldiers' actions are outrageous 
and blasphemous. In the soldiers' minds, these things were meant to amuse themselves, among themselves. And so here Jesus is identifying with everyone. He's identifying with everyone who's ever been the object of cruelty disguised as humor. Every thoughtless joke, every vicious and cruel remark, every person who has ever suffered because they were different, Jesus takes their place. Jesus suffers with them. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be tortured, to be abused, to be criticized, to be mocked. And so the next time a person laughs at you, the next time that a person chides you, makes fun of you for being a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gracious person, I'm going to suggest to you that it's okay for you to not take it so personally. That your mind and your thoughts can go to what happened to Jesus because guess what? Can you imagine on the judgment day? Can you imagine on judgment day? Each and every one of you has to imagine the judgment day that's going to come for you. But can you imagine the judgment day that comes for the religious leaders and then for Pilate and then for these soldiers as they stand before the living Lord of the universe and they lift their eyes at his holy head and they gaze at his face and they make the statement, we were just having fun. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. You were just having fun. But at what cost? At whose expense? How much pain and torture does it take to make you laugh? Jesus has been the object of cruelty disguised as humor ever since Christianity began. In verse 31, look what it says. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him. They put his clothes on him. And then they led him away to be crucified. Think about what's happening in the text. The taunts have grown tired. The ridicule dries up. Even making fun of him has become boring. And so now it's time to get down to the dirty business of death. By now Christ's bleeding back begins to scab. The robes are ripped off his body, reopening fresh wounds. And so the picture that Matthew paints is of this ultimate rejection and ultimate contempt. When Matthew wrote these words and circulated his gospel, the church was just beginning to experience a fresh batch of persecutions. Jews who had accepted Jesus as God's Messiah and Savior were systematically disowned by their family. They were denied employment. Christians were persecuted. They were tortured. They were murdered. If you've ever felt left out of your family, if you've ever been set aside because of your deeply held not just convictions about Jesus, but the reality of what it means to know him and love him. If you've ever been denied friendship or a classmate has written you off or a workmate has decided that your faith in Jesus is just too much, that your faith in Jesus has basically left you alone, then again, you look at Jesus. Watch as he bears the insult. And the injury, take courage from Jesus. Take up your cross and prepare yourself. Because remember what the New Testament says, he who lives godly in Christ Jesus is going to suffer persecution. And in, 
and in in um, in the in the province of Judea, a crucifixion was as common as a funeral procession in our culture. It was as common as an accident on a snowy day in Colorado. And I want to draw your attention to that phrase. And they led him away to be crucified. In ancient times when a person was led away to be crucified, you know what was going to happen at the end of the crucifixion? There was only going to be one inevitable outcome. You were going to die. You were going to die in hours, sometimes days, but you were going to die. And so in ancient times, when a person was led away to be crucified, the condemned prisoner was given what's called a patibulum. The patibulum was the cross beam of the cross. Sometimes in art, you'll see Jesus carrying a cross, but that's probably not accurate. It was the cross beam that was hewn. It was a large piece of wood that looked way more like a railroad tie. The soldiers would have placed this gigantic railroad tie on the torn and the bleeding shoulders of Jesus. His bloody shoulder almost certainly would have smeared the massive beam with blood. St. Chrysostom saw in that picture a prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 22 as he remembered the parallel when Abraham gave Isaac, his son, a load of Wood to light the sacrificial fire. The son of Abraham carrying the wood for the burnt offering. And by the way, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 6, it says, So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. It wasn't lost on him that this was the first mention of love in the Bible. The first mention of love in the Bible is the love of a father for his son. So the soldiers placed the beam on Christ's shoulder. But it's really God. The Father. Placing the beam on God the Son. Four soldiers would have been tasked with leading Jesus away to be crucified. In the ancient world they would have had two soldiers in the front. They would have had two soldiers in the back. In this particular instance, they might have had a separate soldier who would have had what Pilate had written that's going to be placed on the crossbeam. This is the king of the Jews or the accusation. They would have marched forward. One soldier carrying the sign, two in front, perhaps two in back. Jesus exhausted from no sleep exhausted from a vicious beating, exhausted from the loss of blood, stumbles and falls. But there's someone, someone that God had prepared to help Jesus shoulder the burden of love. Look what it says in verse 32, the cross of Simon the Cyrene. It says, now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him, they compelled him to bear the cross. The man was Simon. If you have a map, Cyrene is a province in North Africa. If you have a map, there's Italy and there's Greece. And if you look at the coastline of Africa, if you go directly south from Greece, you'll come to the island of Crete. If you go south from the island of Crete to that strip of land on the northern part of Africa, that was called Serentia in modern-day Libya. It was a province that was owned by a, a basically one of the, the, um, the children of Ptolemy, Appion. It was... He died childless, and so he literally willed this province to the Roman Empire in the ninth decade of the century, in the ninth decade of the first century before Christ. And so Crete and Serentia were all part of the Roman province known as Serentia. And it's a coastal Greek colony. 
But it also had a significant Jewish population. We know that from antiquity because the Romans would send soldiers there to quell some of the riots. And so Simon was probably a Jewish pilgrim who had saved his whole life to make the journey to Judea and Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. It may have taken a large amount of money just to get him there. In antiquity, even from earliest times, some have suggested that this man was a black man, a man of color. And when you look at the text, him they compelled to bear the cross. The word compelled is interesting too. It means to press into service. What's interesting is how the Romans would press a person or a citizen into service. What they would do in the ancient world when they were executing a prisoner or they were fulfilling some sort of thing that required a citizen or a bystander, the Roman soldier would come upon the bystander and he had a spear that was called a pilum. He would take this pilum, which was a gigantic leaf-bladed knife attached to a very long pole, and they would press it on the person's shoulder. They would press the spear on the person's shoulder, and then the sharp edge of the spear would move dangerously close to the neck of that person. And the Roman soldier would say, Rome has need of you. This is why it's called compelled. Because you have to do something that you wouldn't normally want to do. They would, like I said, press the flat part of the spear in order to get them to comply. This would obligate the person to perform the task. Simon's going to carry the cross of Christ. And I'm reasonably certain that he doesn't want to. I want you to think about it just for a moment. Can you imagine? You're in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. You've spent much time and a great deal of money to get there. All of a sudden, you are selected out of the crowd. It's easy to ask the question, why me? Why is this happening to me? Can't you find someone else to press into service? But Simon, as he's pressed into service, as he leaves the Roman spear and he takes up this bloody piece of wood, he is given an opportunity unprecedented. Simon is going to see Jesus in a way that no one else gets to see him. I want you to imagine it just for a moment. He picks up the cross and he follows Jesus to Calvary. And you can't help but thinking that sometimes we are pressed into service. We're asked to do things that we don't want to do. Have you ever been compelled to share someone else's burden? Have you ever been compelled that, that sharing another's burden is going to give you the chance to see Jesus in a fresh way? Have you ever been compelled to do something that it wasn't your first choice, it wasn't even your second choice, but circumstances required you to do that which you did not want to do? Let me ask you a question. If you could go back in time, would you share his burden? Would you be willing to alleviate his pain, see him in a fresh way, experience his sorrow? Well, I've got good news for you. If you answered yes, then the cross of Christ is still available. In Matthew 25, verse 40, it says, And the king shall answer and say to them, Verily I say to you, inasmuch as you've done it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. You have permission to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. When you see a brother or a sister suffering, when you see them under this crushing burden, 
And it may not just be physical illness or financial distress. There are mental and emotional things that crush us and that put us in harm's way or make us vulnerable. When you see a single mom who needs her car repaired, can you help? When you see a brother or a sister who's unemployed or underemployed, can you help? When a family needs groceries or furnitures, can you help? When, you, when a family needs a meal when they're in the hospital, can you help? When a brother or a sister needs a ride to church, can you help? When a person is sick or in pain, is there something that you can make their journey just a little more comfortable. Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, I think the people at Calvary South Denver qualify as at least the least. By the way, what happened to our friend Simon the Cyrene? Well, we know that he had wife and children. You know how we know that? Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 21. We read, And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Mark's gospel, by the way, was in part written to the Romans. It was Peter recounting to John Mark the events that took place, and it would appear that one of those children, Rufus, was an elder in the church at Rome. Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. It's not just simply me, but many of the early church fathers connected the dots and placed Simon and his wife and his children in the community of believers. And so it would appear that one of the prominent members of the church at Rome was Simon's son. And one of those children, Rufus, an elder. In Romans 16, 13, it says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. When Paul says that, apparently whoever Simon's wife is and her children, she's acquired a reputation of being a person who makes a provision for those who are in need. Some have suggested that Simon followed Jesus to Calvary. Some Bible scholars entertain the idea that, again, he became a believer, that he carried the cross. But that he isn't just simply going to carry the cross of Christ. He is going to be governed by that cross. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, of course, says, Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Take up your cross. Follow me. You'll find rest for your souls. John Corson suggests, quote, What is the yoke that Jesus places on our shoulders? Surprise! It's the cross. Wait a minute, you say. That's contradictory. How could a cross be easy? How could a cross give rest to my soul? He goes on to say that the key to life is death. The key to life lies in taking up your cross and following Jesus. Have you taken up your cross? Remember, it's not just an instrument in antiquity. It was the instrument of death whereby you no longer are going to exist, but someone else is going to exist. Maybe Simon lingered when he heard the quote of the prophet Hosea about the future judgment of Israel. Maybe Simon threw the beam down and then watched them nail Jesus to that beam. He must have been amazed with the speed and efficiencies with which the soldiers are going to nail Jesus down and then suspend him between heaven and earth. And maybe Simon stayed long enough to hear the words of Jesus and watch the day turn into night. Maybe he shared what he saw with his wife and children. And maybe it was at the foot of the cross, a cross he helped carry, that Simon came to Christ. He stands as a lesson. When we suffer, when we share in the suffering of, of others, we give opportunity and then we demonstrate an opportunity to see Jesus in a fresh way when we help one another. 
So what will you do? Will you submit to the government of God? Will you take up the cross? Will you become a burden or a burden bearer? Will you seek to be pampered, understood, included? Or are you going to be a part of another person's life to help them? Will you die to yourself and serve others? Or will you live in the constant expectation that someone else has to serve me? Do you spend a lot of your life wondering why there is no one to help you? Or do you spend much of your life wondering who you might help? Jesus has two simple goals. He wants to please his father and he wants to redeem mankind. Someone might be thinking, do you know this sounds a little manipulative? You're trying to motivate me to stop thinking about myself and serve others. Guilty. Are you trying to compel me into Christ's service? Guilty. Simon was probably not pleased when the Roman spear fell on his shoulder and then moved dangerously towards his neck. But it did give him a singular privilege of carrying Christ's cross. It's going to give him the singular privilege of seeing Jesus in a fresh way. It's going to perhaps give him the opportunity to experience eternal life. The spear compelled him to carry a cross. And then the cross led him to Christ. The Romans forced Simon to carry the cross. Sin, sin forced Jesus to carry and then claim the cross that belonged to you. No wonder Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. God forces Jesus to bury, bear the cross for man. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. It's so easy to turn the message into one of therapeutic comfort. Hey, let's all just collectively look at Jesus and feel really bad for what happened to him. Or we can do what I think the text is asking us to do. To consider that his suffering is for sin. Your sin. My sin. And that he is going to give us a way to reverse the effects of the humiliation and contempt that sin brings and experience the salvation that grace and mercy and the gospel brings. I'm going to have Carolyn come up. We're going to sing a couple of songs. I, I, you probably noticed in the last couple of weeks, I've, I've, we've taken this time to give you an opportunity to think about what you've just heard, to reflect and consider. I'd like you to reflect and consider this message.
I'd like you to reflect and consider the challenge. Maybe God's asking you to do something to further his kingdom, to encourage the saints. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person who's listening to this message, Lord. I pray that they would be stirred up. Lord, I pray that they would not be content to just simply feel bad for what happened to Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would see in his suffering the outcome of a life lived in sin and rebellion against God. That there would be a deep desire to turn from sin and to turn to the Savior. That, Lord, we, even though unexpectedly find ourselves in a place that we had no idea what was going to happen, that we feel compelled to think about, pray about, help someone that God places in our life. That, Lord, we can divide the sorrow just for a moment so we can share the joy later on. And so, Lord, again, I pray for that person who hasn't examined their heart in a very long time. Lord, I pray that now, even as we sing and as we praise you, that, Lord, you would fill our hearts with the knowledge of your love as we consider that it's our sin that sent Jesus to that cross. And that salvation is real and that the gospel is true, that we can trust Jesus to be our savior from sin. And so again, Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude as we consider who it is or what it is that you've called us to do to further the kingdom and to advance the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.